Thanks for listening to the Shakespeare and Company interview podcast. Before we get going, I thought you might like to know that after almost four years, author events are back at Shakespeare and Company and in a reimagined event space on our first floor. We have such an exciting lineup in place for you in the coming months. There's Holly McNish and Michael Peterson in early February. Then in March, there's Danny Kane, author of How to Protect Bookstores and Why, Rachel Kushner giving us an exclusive preview of her wild new novel, Creation Lake, and Perlitzer Prize winner Viet Tan Nguyen discussing his memoir, A Man of Two Faces. Beyond that, into the spring, we have a blockbusting book-to-screen event with Otessa Moshfeg and Luke Goebel, as well as conversations with Sheila Hetty, Samantha Schweblin, Hari Kanzru and Rachel Kusk. As always, readings are free, unticketed and open to everyone, so do arrive early to secure your seat. Also make sure you keep an eye on our website, shakespeareandcompany.com, where you can sign up to our newsletter to be the first to hear about our upcoming events. And if you can't be at the bookshop in person, remember that you can listen in to past events here on the Shakespeare and Company interview podcast. We're so happy to be bringing writers and readers together again and look forward to seeing you at the bookshop soon. Now, sit back and enjoy the interview, whichever one you're listening to. Today's episode is a really special one for us. A few weeks back, we had our dear friend, Bloomsday MC and eminent Bloomcaster, Professor Lex Polson, as a guest in the library to give a talk on Cicero, drawing on his book, Cicero and the People's Will, Philosophy and Power at the End of the Roman Republic, recently published by Cambridge University Press. Anyone who has listened to Bloomcast will know that Lex is not just a great speaker, but also a great thinker. And this talk is both an exquisite example of his work and an insight into some of the ideas that shaped his particular and insightful approach to James Joyce's masterwork. We were so pleased to have Lex with us that evening and are delighted to be able to release this talk on Bloomsday. Enjoy. So I want to share um, a little story with you. And it's a story of this book and it's a story of um, an age that whose names are still familiar, but maybe whose uh, inner workings um, you would like to know a bit more about. So if you took a time machine to the year 400 BC, what would the world look like if we were, let's say, doing a cruise around the Mediterranean in 400 BC? Well, in the east, you would see the already very ancient capitals of Egypt and Babylon, Persia. And if you drifted west, you would go past the sparkling, brand new Acropolis in Athens, where the Athenians were laying the groundwork for science and comedy and tragedy and um, sculpture and uh, Western thought. And then further west, the already ancient city of Carthage and the Greek cities of Sicily, and then the venerable Etruscans in the north. And then in between, you would see some marginal peoples you could essentially just wave at. Vaeans, Volscians, Lucani, Romans, Samnites. That was where Rome was in the year 400 BC. Uh, a tiny, marginal little town in central Italy, speaking a poor peasant language called Latin. And their neighbors were soon to discover that this marginal-looking people were, in fact, special. They were extremely religious, dedicated to their traditions, not so unusual in the ancient world, very tough, belligerent, also not very unusual in the ancient world. What was unusual about the Romans wasn't that they never lost a battle. They lost a lot of battles. What was unusual about the Romans was that every time the Romans lost a battle, they would take whatever tool or method or technology that had beaten them, and they would appropriate it, assimilate it, repurpose it, and come back the next year and win. Um, I'll give you an example. Year 264 BC, Rome was now in a cross-Mediterranean conflict with Carthage, in what's now Tunisia today. Carthage was a naval power, had been for several hundred years. Knew everything there was to know about sailing the seas, winning battles at sea. Rome had no navy. 
Rome is inland, not a port city. Rome got badly beaten in its first encounter with Carthage, but was able to capture one ship. And from that one ship, they analyzed, deconstructed, reverse-engineered a fleet, and Rome was winning battles at sea within two years. So these are the kind of people the Romans were. They, with some exceptions, had no great talent for invention, but were the greatest assimilators, integrators of ideas that the world has ever seen. And they just didn't quit. Um, their politics were also very, very strange by ancient standards. So Rome, by their telling, was founded as a monarchy by their first king, Romulus, who gave his name to the city, who convened the elders of the village of Rome. Um, in Latin, the senes. Senex is an old person. We get the word senile and the word senate from the same word. He created the senate of elders and ruled as a king with their advice. His, one of his successor kings, Tarquin, abused his power. Uh, his son raped a young noblewoman named Lucretia, who then killed herself. And there was an uprising of the aristocrats, and Tarquin was overthrown. Now, so far, nothing very unusual. What was unusual was what happened next, because an ancient king would usually be replaced by another king. In this year, 509 BC, the Romans said, we will never have a king again. We will never have one person with total power in our society. We are going to be ruled by the most deserving citizens, chosen by the entire citizens, and rotating power, taking it in turns. And so their public affairs, what they call the, the res publica, the public thing, there would be a distribution of power. There would be two heads of state every year, consuls, there would be a series of magistrates also elected for one-year terms. And there would be the Senate that would advise the magistrates. And people would go from the Senate into this executive position and then go back. And power was distributed in a way that it complemented. Not equal, but complementary. The consuls could control armies and provinces. The Senate had the power over the budget and foreign treaties. And the popular assemblies, the assemblies of the people, were in charge of elections, were in charge of trials, capital punishment, were in charge of, of um, triumphs, declaring triumphs and, and punishments. So power was distributed through the system, but it was incredibly competitive. This was not a happy huggy society. This was an incredibly dynamic and competitive society. If you, as a young Roman, wanted to, uh, to succeed in politics, you would run for office, first for junior magistrates, and then try to climb this, what they call the cursus honorum, the ladder of honors. And so every year you would go into the forum, you would make speeches, you would sing the praises of your family, you would talk about your accomplishments, you would tear down your opponents, you would shake hands, you would kiss babies. This sounds familiar. It's because the Romans invented the political campaign. What we do every year is basically just another rerun of the Roman Republic. What's different also in that Rome had no fixed constitution. Most Greek cities had one founder and a text and here's the rules. Rome was a constant negotiation. The rich families, the patricians, wanted to keep their special authority. The plebeians, the poor families, wanted to have their rights. The poor families would be integrated into the political establishment. But every year there was a new election. And this was the rhythm of Roman political life. Negotiation, persuasion, compromise. The Romans were very violent, even genocidal to their enemies. But within the walls of the city, intramuros, compromise, negotiation. And so this very strange political system ended up conquering the entire known world, the Mediterranean world. And over 300 years, it worked extremely well, except that as the farmer soldiers went further and further away from their farms, they would return and find that their farms had been transformed into slave plantations run by an increasingly wealthy 
senatorial class. One of these young aristocrats named um, Tiberius Gracchus came back from one of the wars and saw a depopulated Italian countryside, and according to Plutarch, he said this, the wild animals of Italy have their dens. Each of them has a place to rest, but those who fight and die for Italy have nothing except the air and the light. Houseless, homeless, they roam the land with their children and wives. They fight and die to protect the rich and luxurious lifestyle enjoyed by others. These so-called masters of the world have not one clod of earth that they can call their own. And so the gap between rich and poor in Rome had now grown by the 130s BC into a chasm. And the elected ruling elite of the Republic had lost their interest in compromise. Tiberius Gracchus, that young aristocrat, is elected tribune of the people, representative of the people, this office that had been created to serve the people's interests. And he proposes a law to redistribute the land of Rome, the public land owned by the Republic to these poor veterans and, and landless citizens. The Senate buys off one of his Tribune colleagues. Tiberius gets the colleague deposed with a vote of the people, and thus begins a constitutional crisis. The day of Tiberius's re-election as Tribune, already in a gray area, the Senate sends a mob, something unthinkable a mob to break up a peaceful transfer of power. Unthinkable. And a mob goes into the forum, beats Tiberius Gracchus and 500 of his followers to death, throws their bodies in the Tiber. And thus, 300 years of competitive but peaceful politics comes to an end. And the era of Rome's civil wars begins. This is the world in which Cicero was born. Cicero, Marcus Tullius Cicero, his friends probably called him Cicero. We soften the C and, uh, in English and French. Cicero means chickpea, by the way. He was very proud to have kind of an offbeat family name. He was born in a countryside city called Arpinum, about 100 kilometers from Rome, in the year 106 BC. 20 years after these civil wars began. And now, there were three ways if you wanted to make it as a politician in Rome. You could be from a famous family, like a Claudius or a Julius. You could be a very talented soldier, a fighter. Or you could be very rich, make a lot of money. And of those three, Cicero had zero. He was slender. He was bookish. He was thoughtful. And his family knew that this young bookish boy was never going to be a general at the head of a legion. And so they sent him to Rome to study at the house of one of Rome's great legal minds, Quintius Mucius Scaevola. And at the foot of Scaevola, Cicero, in an incredible speed, absorbs the arcane rules of Roman law. He also studies Greek philosophy with the Stoic teacher Diodotus, and with the inheritor of Plato's chair at the academy, Philo of Larissa, who comes to Rome in 87, the young Cicero is drinking in Plato, Aristotle, the Stoics. He knows that if he's going to make it, he's burning with desire to join the adventure of Roman politics, but he will have to do it as a what the Romans called a new man, not with a famous family behind him, but as a novus homo, make his own way. And he wasn't the only young talent arriving then on the Roman scene. Another young man, this one from an aristocratic, impoverished but still aristocratic family, the Julii family, was starting to be noticed, talked about, it's essentially Cicero's age, a couple years younger, by the name of Gaius Julius Caesar. I think you've maybe heard of him. And Cicero and Caesar spend their entire lives in this city, facing off occasionally allies, but often on two very different sides. Cicero will not be a great general. 
He will not make his fortune in the traditional way. He will be the greatest debater, the greatest arguer, the greatest thinker. He will outthink, outwit, outfox, outargue his adversaries in the forum. In trials, in elections, he will use his strategic gifts, his linguistic gifts, to get ahead. And Cicero's very first chance to win the spotlight, his real kind of arrival on the Roman scene, the age of 36. He had just returned from Sicily as a junior officer in the Roman imperial administration. And he was outraged because the governor at that time in Sicily was a, a man named Gaius Verus, who was engaged in a very systematic campaign of extortion of the local populations, taking their, taking their paintings and their uh, nice things. And Cicero said, this is not how Rome should govern. We have a special duty to govern the world, and this is not how we should do it. And he decides to prosecute Gaius Verus as a young, no-name prosecutor. Now, the twist is that Verus had to be convicted by a jury of his peers, in this case, aristocratic senators like himself who had made their money in much the same way. And so Cicero, at the beginning of his speech, he says he can't earn their trust and credibility by appealing to famous pedigree that he doesn't have. So instead, he says that prosecuting Verus and holding him accountable for these crimes as governor, as a representative of the Roman state, that this is voluntas populi Romani. This prosecution is by the will of the Roman people. Not by this 36-year-old no-name, but by the will of the Roman people. And this speech against Verus is the first occurrence of the phrase, the will of the people, in all the annals of Western history. Cicero wins the case. He wins election after election by appealing to this base of the Roman people behind him. Now, is he the first politician to claim that he spoke for the people? No. But he has at least two things about his appeal to the will of the people that are very different. The first is he makes a populist case against the populists, the popularists, the people who were claiming to represent the common person against the senatorial wealthy elite, including later Julius Caesar, they called for overturning the system, returning power to the people, the same thing that populists do today. Rome, again, invented this. Cicero doesn't want to overturn the system. He wants to restore it to a rightful balance. He doesn't want to, to remove the Senate. He wants the Senate to be just a little less blatantly violent and corrupt. And so that's the first of his innovations. The second is many Romans, conservative Romans, including senators, distrusted Greek things. Greek things were fancy, sophisticated, corrupting, decadent. And Cicero thought differently. Cicero believed that the use of reason that was revealed in the texts of Plato and Aristotle and the Stoics were not in antagonism against against Roman tradition and Roman law, but in fact were a way of clarifying and synthesizing and justifying Roman tradition. Rome had conquered Greece, not the other way around. Rome was always the great assimilator, the great integrator. And Cicero, more than anybody else, took this incredible richness of thought from ancient Greece and made it Roman, made it speak Latin, to use his words. He wins election after election. In the year 63 BC, Cicero earns the highest office in all of Rome. He's elected consul. And he suppresses a plot against Rome by one of the election losers, a bankrupt aristocrat named Catiline. And if you or your parents or grandparents ever studied Cicero in school, you would have read this speech. Oh, mores, oh, tempora, oh, the times we live in, oh, the ways of man. This was the greatest moment of his life. Cicero has arrived at the top as a new man, at the top of Roman politics, and has patriotically saved the state. He's declared father of his country. It's his crowning achievement. But Cicero's tongue earns him enemies, as well as friends. 
And in the controversial aftermath of the Catalines conspiracy, Cicero is exiled. Caesar wins the consulate. The populists come back into power. Cicero is sent away from Rome. Caesar, incidentally, during the 50s BC, invites Cicero to join a cabal of powerful Romans. Him, himself, Caesar, Pompey, the great general, now more elderly, and Crassus, Marcus Licinius Crassus, the richest man maybe in all of Roman history. He says, wait, look, we have three. You can make a fourth. Cicero is true to the traditions of his republic and turns down the opportunity to have almost unthinkable power in the state. He says, no, no, that's not what I stand for. And so Cicero spends that decade of the triumvirate when these three men are basically ruling ancient Rome. Cicero is in and out of the spotlight. Caesar comes here, commits what many think was a, a fairly brutal genocide against the natives of what became known as Gaul. Lutes, as it was, integrating it into the Roman world, teaching them to speak Latin. And Cicero uses his time out of the spotlight when Caesar is ascending into power with his two cronies to write his two great masterpieces on the Republic. I have my venerable old edition here, De Republica de Legibus, on the Republic and on the laws. And this is really where this idea of the Republic takes shape in a way that we can recognize today. Cicero's problem is how to explain to the younger generation that's now lived through two lifetimes of civil war what the Republic really is and how they can help put it back together. And to do this, he brings in Plato, his great intellectual hero, and he brings in the traditions of Roman law in which he was trained. And he brings them together to explain, in the form of a dialogue, like Plato, what the Republic really is. Rome, he says, is not against philosophy or reason. Rome is the embodiment of the most rational way of ordering a society. It was the reason, it was the prudence of its early statesmen that created this system that Plato imagined in this republic, Rome made it real. And whereas many Greek cities needed one all-seeing founder, Rome's republic was the creation, he says, non unias ingenio, sed multorum, by the genius not of one, but of many. But how should this society be organized? Who should really have power? in Rome's Republic. This had been the core of the civil wars. Who should have the power to make decisions in this society? And here's where Cicero has his own idea. For several hundred years since Aristotle, many observers of politics around the Mediterranean thought, well, the best society is one that blends power together. This was Aristotle's idea, where you have some societies that are ruled by one person, some that are ruled by a small group of rich people, and others that are ruled by the masses. Well, the most stable society will be one that is a blend, that is a mixed constitution. Cicero thinks that this is wrong. And he has a problem, which is that he believes that every citizen must be free, but not every citizen shall participate, participate equally. So how does he explain this? How does he justify this? Well, here he reaches back to Roman law. And he defines the republic in terms of a piece of property that belongs to the entire people. He says, res publica, res populi. The entire republic is not a cake to be divided up, as Aristotle said. No, the entire cake belongs to the sovereign people of Rome. Res publica, res populi. But something this precious must be ruled by people with the special skills and education to rule, who have read philosophy, who have understood reason. And this is where Plato guides him. Cicero says, Rome has a tradition. When you own a piece of property, but you don't have the skills, the competence to govern it, 
you create a trustee, someone who you entrust to manage it on your behalf, to govern it on your behalf. And so he says, Rome is not a system of checks and balances. It's not a system of, of dividing up the pie. All of the people own the republic, but they delegate their power. And the will of the people is the act of delegating from a sovereign people to the ones who actually are in charge, the Senate. An elected elite ruling over a sovereign people. If this is starting to sound familiar, this is not an accident. He has one little problem, though. If the people don't have good enough judgment to actually participate, as they did in Athens directly, democracy meant self-rule, participation, ruling in turns by lottery. Rome said no, elections. So Cicero has to justify this. But if the people aren't competent, why do we give them the power to vote in elections? Here's where his training as an orator gives him an idea. He says, look, great orators don't speak the language of Greek philosophy. They speak the language of common sense, called the census communis, literally common sense. The stories, the jokes, the references that the entire people understand and that touches on these values and that everybody will be able to recognize when someone is speaking in a way that is coherent with the values of the community. And if the Senate can just get rid of the demagogues, suppress the corrupt people in their own ranks, that the people can be trusted with that one choice through this moment of interaction between the educated elite politician and the average voter. It's a clever argument. I'll let you decide for yourself if you, if you buy it. It's possible Cicero himself didn't buy it because this work, De Legibus, was never finished. It's the last work of constitutional theory, properly constitutional theory in all of classical antiquity. And following this, the triumvirate breaks down. Caesar leaves Gaul crosses the Rubicon River back into Italy, casts the die, wins the Civil War, declares himself dictator, and then dictator for life. Cicero, thrust out of the spotlight once again, writes once more with the help of Plato and the Stoics, and once again, his creativity bears marvelous fruit on a darker set of questions. Not how to save and stabilize the Republic, but rather how can we live a good life in a world where the Republic is dead? Freedom, our freedom was lost on the battlefield, was lost when the dictator took power. But it can be never taken away from the human soul. In each of us is that same struggle that had been fought on the battlefields of Rome's civil wars, between selfish desires and between what reason tells us is right, between our impulses and our better judgments, between despair at an unfair world and the strength that allows us to keep on living. So in this little text of 46 BC, De Fato, Cicero argues against the idea that our fate is decided for us by the universe. There's nothing we can do about it. Such scientific determinism would, he says, rob the human mind of libera voluntas. And here again, Cicero gives all of us a new phrase, the human faculty to make choices worthy of our highest selves, what he calls free will. Four centuries later, Cicero's greatest reader in antiquity, the man we call St. Augustine, would develop this idea of free will into a central tenet of Christianity, of Christian thought, and thus, through the Middle Ages into the modern world. And whether free will exists is still debated by scholars of artificial intelligence and complexity right now. But in its first ever appearance, this phrase is Cicero's phrase to locate the force to win virtue and freedom in our souls. His Republic, as you may know, kept its empire as it lost this freedom. Julius Caesar is murdered 
on the Senate floor, in the Ides of March 44 BC, his nephew and heir, the young, brilliant 19-year-old Octavian, at first fights his uncle's right-hand man, Mark Antony, for control of Caesar's legacy, and against the forces of his assassins, Brutus and Cassius. And for one last hopeful moment, the now 62-year-old Cicero resumes his place as leader of the Senate, rallying the forces of the Republic in great invectives against Mark Antony and trying, trying to mentor and guide this young 19-year-old new Caesar. But the new Caesar makes his peace with Antony on the condition that Antony's enemies, including Marcus Tullius Cicero, be put to death. And so this once thoughtful, bookish boy, defender of the dying republic, must meet his own death, which he does with courage, calmly sticking his head out of the carriage surrounded by his executioners, freeing his slaves in his will. Octavian then, of course, turns on Antony and the much more sympathetic Cleopatra, gives himself a new special name, Augustus, becoming the first emperor. Emperors, beginning with Augustus, would rule Rome for another 500 years in the west, in the East, emperors would rule from Constantinople for another thousand years after that. And so that brings us back to here. And um, nearly, nearly back to here. In 1787, a warm day like this, 55 people, about the same number as in this upstairs, beautiful upstairs library, gathered to decide what kind of government the United States of America would have. They had declared independence from the British. They had tried a set of articles of confederation that were very radical and decentralized, which seemed to pose problems, at least from the gentleman's point of view. And James Madison and these other 55 men came together. Would they be a democracy? Well, democracy, that was the mob. That was poor people taking things from rich people can't be a democracy, but the respublica, freedom from tyranny, the rule of law, the rotation of well-deserving gentlemen in positions of power, a nominally sovereign public. Republic, then, republic. And you'll notice in the American Constitution and in all of the many constitutions that have copied it in the succeeding years, how many times does the word democracy appear? in this supposedly democratic system? Zero times. We are children of republics. 18 centuries after Caesar buried Cicero's republic, it came back to life first in Philadelphia, then in Paris, Venezuela, South Korea, and so on. And this is our, exactly, and this is our choice today. We live in the world that Cicero created, how is that model of governance doing? Did the promise of a free people who are constrained to voting once a year and complaining the rest of the year and trusting their public affairs to a virtuous, educated elite, how well is that working today? Better than many alternatives. But could we imagine a better system? Could we use some of that creativity that Cicero exemplified and save our politics before we too experience that collapse into violence at the hands of populists and those who would centralize power to themselves. There are things we can do. France is experimenting with new forms of citizen participation. You can visit participedia.net. It's a global compendium of citizen participation. At our school in Morocco, School of Collective Intelligence, we study how to compose smarter groups. And guess what? The news is good. Diverse crowds can outperform small groups of experts that have the same blind spots. Another paradigm is possible. But we have to use that same creativity that Cicero had 
to go beyond the model that he set for us. And in so doing, I think we will hear echoes of that phrase from his De Repubblica, non unias ingenios ed multorum, from the genius not of one, but of many. So thank you for being here, and I would love to hear what you think. Thank you so much, Lex. Um, we would love to hear what you think, too. If anybody has a question for Lex or a comment on what you've just heard or, or a response to anything Lex has said, just raise your hand. I'll get the microphone to you, and, um, and we'll continue the conversation. Uh, lots of things we could comment on, you're referring to. What made you decide to write this book? Um, growing up in Washington, D.C., you could say I was vaccinated early against the um, nonsense of politics, but also fascinated with, with the, what makes a political system work and what makes it fail. Um, as a senior at university, I had the chance to take a, my first Roman history class. And of course, like many of us, these are names that you hear in the culture. Maybe you've encountered Plato or Aristotle or Caesar or Cicero in, in high school. I didn't know very much about Roman history. But I was lucky to have great teachers, and in, in this case, a teacher named John Matthews at Yale, who um, gave this panorama of a thousand years of Roman history. And to me, this age from Tiberius Gracchus down to Julius Caesar and Cicero is endlessly fascinating. It's also an age that is extremely well documented. Um, Cicero, by the way, uh, we have 76 of his speeches, 12 philosophical treatises, and about 800 letters it's probable that we know more about Cicero and his inner life than any human being <laughs> from the beginning of our species until a couple hundred years ago. Um, because his Latin was so beautiful that even in the Christian age, monks would copy and recopy his speeches and letters. And so, um, so much of Cicero's writing is still, is still with us. Uh, and because of Cicero's writing, we know about his dinner parties with Cleopatra and Caesar. And um, Caesar, of course, wrote and and uh, historians like Livy and Sallust. So it's a very well-documented time, and it's incredible drama. I hope I brought a little bit of it um, to life in my story, but it could have gone other ways. It could have gone other ways. And violence was unthinkable right up to the point where it happened. Um, in 2021, we saw you know, what happens when that line is crossed. And in a place, my hometown, Washington, D.C., um, there's a very thin line between a stable republic and violence. And we're just on this side of it. And I think history tells us a lot about what can happen and also what needs to happen in order to save the political order. We must adapt. We must redistribute resources. We must educate. We must rebalance our political systems and reform them before it's too late. So to me, the Roman Republic has just an infinite supply of lessons, practical lessons, about how to make our politics work better. Great poetry as well, great literature. Um, but it's this adventure story of politics and ideas that I think really drew me. And as I say, I was very lucky to have one of the world's great Cicero scholars um, accept me to come here and do my PhD and guide me uh, through Cicero's thought. And uh, it was that PhD which was the basis of this book. So thanks for the question. Um, so my question is related to your comment about, like, most Western countries being republics. Why do you think the word democracy is used so much instead of republic now? Yeah. Um, if you can take one thing away from this little um, silly talk of mine, um, democracies are not republics. Republics are not democracies. And... and the principle of democracy was always citizen self-government, citizens participating directly. And the main mechanism in ancient Athens was direct participation in the, in the assembly, the ecclesia, 4,000, 5,000 people voting on everything, and the offices formed by lottery, so that you as a citizen had an equal chance of being selected for a jury, for the, for the council, lottery. And even in Aristotle, he says elections, are for oligarchies. Elections favor an elite. And we see every day 
Do the people who serve in parliament, do they look like the average group of 100 people? No, they're wealthier, they're taller, they're richer, they're better looking. Of course, they're not representative in that sense uh, of us, even though they claim to represent us. The historical reason, again, democracy was a very bad word, was a, was a term of abuse in the American Revolution, in the, in the French Revolution, with some exceptions. Uh, Tom Paine, Thomas Paine, Condorcet were defenders of more democratic models. But again, the Res Publica, the Rome's, Rome's Republic was considered to be a safe bet, especially at a large scale. James Madison said you can't have citizen direct participation at this large scale of a continent. You can only do it through electing representatives. Now, where did democracy kind of come into uh, our parlance? Well, over the course of the 1800s and early 20th century, the who could vote expanded. Um, first to people with less money, then in America to African Americans, then it was taken away again, then to women, and then ultimately to African Americans again <laughs> in the 60s. And in each of these moments of expanding the, the voters, this was looked at as a moment of the, the victory of democracy. And so the word democracy in the 1830s and again in the 1870s was used as a term of praise, even though the actual power of citizens was very small. It was still elections and complaining, elections and complaining. Advocacy is a nicer way of saying complaining. But the power of citizens was nowhere near what citizens could do in Athens, nowhere near. And yet, because of this historical accident, we call France and America and South Korea and Poland democracies. We've never seen a democracy, not even Switzerland. You know, they vote by mail. They're not deliberating in a public assembly. Um, We've never known what it's like to live in a democracy, but I'd like to find out. I'd really like to find out. I have a related follow-up question. If so you started your talk by transporting us back in time to Cicero. Let's do the opposite. Let's bring Cicero up here um, and task him with modeling something more satisfactory given today's sort of technological opportunities and the concerns brought about by today's technology. What does he do? <sighs> so, right, well. I actually, it's, an, it's a great point about, about the use of technology to scale up. Um, I think Cicero would have been very excited by, by modern technology. In fact, it's these generative AI tools that have allowed me to have my first conversations with Cicero. Do you guys know these tools that let you talk to historical figures? So I had like a long, very intense conversation with Cicero the other night, um, which I've taken screenshots of, and if I can show you later if you're interested. But I asked him all the questions that I wanted to ask him, which is, you know, uh, this gap between rich and poor in Rome. C clearly, this was obviously the structural problem that had to be fixed. You couldn't just say to poor people who were desperate in desperate poverty to just know your place. Cicero, I guess like a lot of people who come from the suburbs, the margins, I mean, we saw a succession end this week with an outsider from the suburbs come and, oh, so, yeah, spoiler alert. Um, um, but, but, you know, he was an elitist, right? He believed in ascending the realms of elite power. He believed that educated people should be the ones to have political power. Um, where I think he would be fascinated would be the idea of mass education via public universities and the internet. These were things, obviously, that didn't exist. Not even the idea of public education was so beyond what a Greek or a Roman would have imagined possible. I think Cicero would have found that very interesting, that you could go, anyone could go and see a video of Plato's Republic online. Um, I think the idea of, of mass diffusion of knowledge would have maybe, maybe caused Cicero to think differently, maybe, um, about the possibility of a mass-educated uh, society, therefore, being responsible to hold power. But he was born in a time of civil war, in a time where the populists were not to be trusted, and um, he took in a more elitist view. But I, I like to think that seeing what's possible today, he might change his mind, and he might say to us, "Education." And this is something that that I that I think any anyone from Greece and Rome would have agreed with this. Education is part of your constitution. Public education is a branch of government. I see people staring like that's a very strange thing to say. Yes, we were raised to think that constitution is over here. It's what politicians do. And education is over here. It's what teachers do. You know, a third of Plato's Republic is dedicated to the education system. Education was considered a fundamental political institution. We don't think of it that way. 
we have very poor civics, extremely poor civics and history and leadership. We don't learn that in school. We learn math and science and some literature. And so I think that's what one thing Cicero would, would absolutely insist that we reinvent, is that every young person should have access to civic education and develop leadership, not just learn their A's, A, B's, and C's. Uh, thanks a lot for your speech. It definitely makes a big interest to read the book uh, through your voice and eyes uh, to see how it's relevant today. Um, I think actually I have two questions. So my first question is, is it a fair comparison to say that today the United States is some sort of Roman Empire and Europe it's in a way the Greece of this Roman Empire of today? And on that note, I was wondering, because you mentioned the Greek culture and its influence, so I was wondering about the role, for example, of the, of the Greek language in, in Rome. I think I was listening to a podcast, and they were saying that it was a language used in theater, so it was a little bit like Latin today for us, perhaps. I I'm not sure. So I'm w I was wondering about the role of the Greek language during the Roman Empire and of the, of the Greek territories and what role, cultural role they played at that time. Thank you. Thanks. I'll answer the second one first because it's kind of fun. Um, sometimes when you see uh, Cicero's letters, he's writing in Latin, but he'll occasionally use a Greek phrase because it was sort of the equivalent, and sometimes you'll see this today in translations, they'll translate it, the Greek into French as if these are like British aristocrats, you know, with snippets of French. Um, and so one way of looking at the role of Greek is the role of what French was in many educated European societies in the 19th and, and maybe some part of the 20th century. Um, Cicero's generation in the first century BC is also the high watermark in terms of bilingualism in Latin and Greek. So prior to the 100s BC, um, I mean, the Greek world wasn't really integrated until the battles of, of the 160s and 150s. Um, Rome wasn't really ruling Greek directly. And then you know, over the course of the 100s BC, Greek culture is flowing into Rome. And so, Rome be Roman culture becomes Hellenized, there's some resistance, these people are decadent, but also we like their medicine, we like you know, some of their mystery cults, we like their parties, we like their wine, we like their olive oil. So, I mean, there was a lot to love. <laughs> um, but, and then interestingly, after Cicero's generation, as the empire and the imperial structure becomes um, more sophisticated, Latin becomes the official language of all of the empire. And so Greek bilingualism in Rome goes down. So, so Cicero and his generation, he, any educated person he was writing a letter to, he could expect to know Greek in the way that a British aristocrat of the late Victorian age would you know, assume that his colleagues probably would understand French. And so, um, and so yeah, I, I, find it, I, find it, I find it wonderful that he's able to really think uh, in both languages and not only think in both languages, but take Greek ideas and express them in Latin in a way that no one had ever done before including coining words, uh, the term um, quality, uh, calitas and quantitas, Cicero creates those words. He, he, the idea of humanitarian, humanitas, Cicero is the first occurrence of that word. Um, he'll take Greek you know, terms of art and he'll translate them into Latin. So, so he's doing a lot of translation, um, as well as coining ideas from Greek ideas, uh, coining words uh, in Latin for the first time. Is Europe the, the vassals of the American empire? Um, Less and less? <laughs> uh, is the relationship similar to Roman, Roman Greece? I mean, certainly, I think of great works of literature that show what the American imagination is like. You know, Great Gatsby, what are the things that Gatsby always carried around with him? It was the picture of Oxford and it was the medal from Montenegro. So, you know, the only signs of status and respect from, uh, for an American trying to show that he was worthy of respect were, were from Europe. And so there's still this idea you see the number of articles about Paris published in the New York Times. There, there is still the idea that America, on, on matters of real high taste um, and, you know, and deep depth of ideas and thinking that uh, Europe still sets the standard for, for, for America. Um, but I think America's empire is nowhere near as uh, robust as Rome's was in, in Cicero's time and uh, it's looking like it's uh, not going to get any better. Maybe that's good news. Maybe we should have fewer empires in the world. Yes, maybe uh, Professor Levy. Uh, thank you, Alex, uh, for everything you said. Your speech was brilliant, as uh, usual. I can only approve. <laughs> <laughs> and I learned so many things from you, 
also. I have perhaps a question, or but a remark. Perhaps you are a little bit too optimistic. Why? Because you are right. We can say that uh, Cicero invented the concept of will, voluntas. Uh, the uh, Greeks had perhaps ten words to say will, and so nobody knew what it could be exactly. But Will is a power, and uh, as each power, uh, there is the risk of violence. Uh, there can't be will without the risk of violence. What, wha what could be uh, Cicero's answer? No problem, or perhaps some problem. Uh, we have the power of the law. But what is law? Law is also will, collective will. And so the risk exists also to see uh, a perverse use of uh, will, both individual and collective. What could be the conclusion? The conclusion is that uh, everything is fragile, risky, very difficult to control, and uh, it's not good to be, as I am, uh, fundamentally pessimistic but perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, as I remember from our first year working on, working on this project, I thought I'd noticed something that Cicero used the idea of voluntas as, a, as a, one of two twin poles with the other being vis, and you corrected me, thankfully. Um, because as you say, will has its own force. And I think the image that you, you guided me to, Professor Levy, he wrote um, an article that, that was very important to my work um, about how in the Hellenistic period, so after Plato and Aristotle down to Cicero, the 200s, the 100s BC, the idea of a, of a platonic, immaterial, true world, that idea had more or less gone out of fashion. And the idea of a material world, whether it was the Stoic idea of a world infused with reason, the Logos, or an Epicurean idea of a world broken into small atoms of cause and effect, and the gods don't really care what you do, so you might as well have a picnic, that, that the Stoics and Epicureans agreed that the world was material. That if you want to understand the world, you have to understand the forces in the world. And that this was especially true if your training was in rhetoric, in oratory, where literally it's the force of your breath, physical force carried from your mind into the world. And so for Cicero to be an orator was to take part in a play of forces that could be measured that could be weighed. Um, and so, what is the best we can hope for? It's an equilibrium. It's an equilibrium. Um, because there's always the chance of an ambitious, forceful person upsetting the balance. But this is why leaders are necessary. This is why all of us need to be leaders in as much as we can. Because each of us has a force. And each of us can be part of a force that balances the wills in our society, creates this matrix that can be resilient and that can adapt and, and solve hard problems. Or we can passively let someone take our force from us. 
and say that they're going to be our champion and we see too many of those people. So you've, you've influenced me, I won't say pessimistically, but uh, skeptically in the tradition of the Carnadian skeptics um, to look maybe with more realism, maybe tamping my, my American optimism a bit with some, with some erudition. Um, and so I'll take the opportunity again to say thank you, Professor Levy, for everything you've done for this book. And I think we have time for one more question, and I see <laughs> a couple of fingers raised there. So, Wonderful speech, Lex. Uh, characteristically brilliant, of course. We all know uh, how generous and brilliant you are with your, uh, with your learning and your erudition and your, and your insight. So I have a question, uh, and it bothers me every day. And I, and I say this not as a, as I say this as a, as a very negative person, Eastern European, right? The glass isn't half empty, it's three, three quarters empty, right? It's, even <laughs> it's mostly empty, right? It's mostly empty space. What does Cicero have to tell us about elites that have failed? Elites that have failed to lead well, that have failed to have good values, that have, uh, as has happened all throughout the Western world, have given up on a connection to the people that elected them, that have lack of martial virtues, that have become decadent, that have become self-righteous and nasty and unpleasant, and, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. What do we do uh, in terms of Republican ideals about elites that are not worthy of leading, right? And this is actually a big problem throughout the Western world because upper middle class graduates of universities basically monopolize center-left political parties. And it's all good to say we have to educate the youth, but we educate them in universities, and then they come to power and they despise the popolo who has elected them. So what do we do? What is the Cicerosian answer to that, yeah. sir? So I, I, you use a, a phrase, martial virtues, which I think is really important to understand what Cicero's answer would be. And I know um, Professor Davidson. Vlad, um, who has spent um, quite a bit of time in a war zone um, this last year, how important you and uh, can testify um, and you exemplify, if I might say, um, the bravery that Romans were taught to to embody um, in what you've done in Ukraine. I will say that that Cicero looks at this idea of virtue very differently than the Greeks. That the Greeks, um, Stoics, Plato, Socrates would have thought about virtue as a conversation with yourself that you train your mind to reason better by asking questions, by engaging in dialogue. But fundamentally, it's, a, it's an activity of, of reason. Rome was a different kind of place where you proved your worth in action, not in speech in the same way as in, as in Greece. It was an extremely action-oriented culture. And so Cicero writes in one of his great uh, treatises, the Tusculan Disputations, that it's not enough just to want to be good, to decide to be good. No. If you want to be brave, if you want to be courageous, if you want to be generous, if you want to master your desires, you have to try and try and try and fail and try better and fail better and try better, right? Who was it who said fail better and try better? Beckett. Beckett. Thanks. And, and, there was a real, even though Cicero himself wasn't a born soldier, he actually did serve in the army several times and was uh, an honorable member of the Roman, you know, martial elite, um, declared imperator by his troops um, when he was governor later in his career. But Cicero really believed that you have to fight for virtue and that it's not just about playing your role as a cog in the machine of the establishment. It's a work on yourself. It's a travail sur soi, as they say. You know, you have to really want to be better. And virtue is a very unfashionable, as you say, very unfashionable, especially on the left, um, to talk about the need of inculcating, cultivating virtue. It's considered to be a very William F. Buckley right-wing sort of thing. But I think he's on to something in that we can't make the world better if we aren't also invested in making ourselves better. And I think people on the left are also starting to 
understand. You know, org the organizing tradition, being an organizer involves a huge amount of work on your own um, weaknesses and developing your strengths. So I think Cicero would, would emphasize that if you want to be a member of an elite, he believed in elites, but if you want to be a member of that elite, you have a lot of work to do on yourself and you have to exemplify that virtue in coherence in your action and your words. Um, and that might sound very old-fashioned, very conservative to us, but I think there's actually something refreshing in taking responsibility for practicing what you preach. I think that's a perfect note on which to end at least the formal part of the event. You may have noticed on your way up we have glasses of wine served in our piano room, so do join us, join Lex in the back, continue the conversation. Um, Lex, it's been such a wonderful evening. Thank you so, so much. Um, as I said at the start, it's such a joy to crank back into our events program with you. I couldn't have imagined a better way to do it. So please, everybody, just one more time, give a big, big thank you to Mr. Lex Post. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 Euro a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album, Play It Gentle, is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. <laughs>